This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Those of us in here, let's open our Bibles together to Mark chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, second chapter. So this is week number two of a short series we're doing called Welcomed by Jesus. We started last week in Romans 15, verse 7, where it says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And that leads us to ask, if we can glorify God by welcoming one another, like Jesus welcomes us, The natural question is, what kind of welcome does Jesus give? And last week, we kind of gave the theological answer to that question. What kind of welcome does Jesus give? He welcomes us, he welcomes the church, he welcomes his people by giving himself up for us, by washing us, cleansing us with the good news of God's grace. That's Ephesians 5, 25, and 26. This week, we're going to take a different approach. And then for the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep doing this, Lord willing. I want to answer that question again. What kind of welcome does Jesus give by looking at some of the key times, events, where Jesus actually welcomed people? And so if you think of this like senses... Last week, we heard about the gracious hospitality of Jesus. He welcomes us this way. This week, we see it. So last week, we hear it with our ears. This week, we're going to kind of see it with our eyes as we're welcomed into a setting, a scene, where Jesus is welcoming people. So in Mark 2, Jesus calls a new follower to himself, and then he hosts a meal at this man's house. And the reason this is a good place for us to look at the the welcome that Jesus is giving is because it's such a different message than you will hear anywhere else in all the world. It's unique to Jesus. And, And therefore, it's not only the message of Christianity, but it's remarkably different than anything else that you'll ever see or hear. And I have to warn us, I think... When something is so different, we have to be warned that that it's going to be comforting and unsettling all at the same time. Uh, It's comforting because Jesus is always full of love and grace. But I think the kind of welcome that Jesus gives will unnerve us because it's so different different than anything that we expect, that that it's going to press on the places that we usually would turn to for assurance and for stability. Uh, For some of us who like to know what the rules are, and we are rule followers, we pride ourselves on knowing and following the rules, Jesus is going to welcome all kinds of rule breakers. The very kinds of people that we might even loathe, Jesus calls to himself and eats a meal with them. And it causes some of us to wonder, it causes some people to wonder, 
If Jesus actually knows what he's doing at all, look at all the rule breakers that he surrounds himself with. Now, on the flip side, for those of us who never want to be challenged and, and have this picture of Jesus where we say, well, Jesus is so, uh, he would never want me to be uncomfortable. He would never look at me and want to challenge me in any way. We have to see here that Jesus challenges people all the time. He treats sin with the utmost of seriousness. He's never going to let somebody be comfortable in their sin. He's never going to be dismissive of sin or give any impression that he hasn't come to call sinners to repentance. That's actually the point of what is happening here. Jesus is calling sinners and he's, not, he's never going to let them be comfortable in their sin. So if you don't want him to come after the rule breakers, and you don't want him to press on you, this is going to make us all uncomfortable this morning. So let's, let's read together, and then we'll break this down. Not exactly verse by verse, but we will do the whole thing. So let's, uh, let's start at Mark chapter 2. Verse 13, I'm going to read through 17. Follow along with me in your own Bible. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want us to see two things from this event. The first is to look at at what kind of people Jesus came for, through who he calls out to, and who he eats with. And the second, let's see together how, how merciful a Savior Jesus is. Jesus extends the grace of God to someone, to a bunch of people, who he has no rational reason to love. And through the the party he attends, you could probably argue it's even his party, he flips the script on everything that most people thought the Messiah would be. So it starts with Jesus walking by the sea and seeing Levi. Levi is also called Matthew, who wrote the first gospel, becomes one of Jesus' closest disciples. So Levi is sitting there at his tax booth. And in order to appreciate what's happening here, you need to know why tax collectors were so reviled. At this point, the the people of Israel are living under Roman occupation. This is near the height, if you know anything about world history, of the Roman Empire, the, the Rome rules much of Europe. 
They rule all across North Africa, and then they rule kind of the western half of what is today the, the Middle East. So this is a huge geographical land area that is under their control. And, and certainly without the benefit of, of modern communication, what they were able to accomplish, the, the amount of land they were able to acquire was remarkable. And, and what you would realize is the only way that they could possibly do that, to keep that under control, to keep that under their ownership, is simply to rule through intimidation and brute strength. So what Rome would do is they would install local governors and then they would send troops to subdue people through fear. And the way they paid for all of that was through taxes. And these taxes were collected by local men who would essentially bid out the job. So what they would do is is they would prepay the Roman government and for their winning bid, and according to their prepayment, be given the right to run the taxation program and recoup whatever they had already invested plus whatever else they could extract from the people. So here's what all of this adds up to in a place like Israel. You have Levi, who's an Israelite, linking up with the oppressive government, doing the work of funding their occupation, all while extorting more money than was necessary from his own people for the tax. And that's why Mark has two categories that fit together to describe a group of of a kind of outcasts and undesirables that Jesus was going to eat with. Tax collectors are, are not men who work for the IRS. People who work for the IRS today are, are simply government employees carrying out the legal work that our democratically elected legislators have assigned to them. Tax collectors in ancient Israel were mobsters funding an occupying army at the expense of their own people. It's a completely different thing. Levi's a traitor and a cheater. And this is the work. He's at work when Jesus says to him, follow me. And look at what happens. Levi gets up immediately and follows him. Now, the implication is clearly that Levi isn't just following him in this moment, but Levi is leaving behind his old life. Whatever he's been up to this point, he's no longer going to be. He's starting a completely new life. And we know that because that's what he did. We know that Levi becomes a disciple of Jesus. We know that Levi has left everything to follow Jesus. And he's not the only one. The next verse, now, now Jesus is in Levi's house at a table, and there, there are a bunch of people who would be described just like Levi. There are more tax collectors. We know that because it's plural. And then there's this category that Mark just calls sinners. And just in case you thought this was a small group, 
Mark says that there were many tax collectors and sinners. It, it actually says that twice in the same verse. There were many tax collectors and sinners. For there were many who followed him. This is a f- party full of disreputable people. And Jesus is in the middle of it. And he's glad for it. And he's having a great time with these people. He's loving it. But others aren't. The scribes of the Pharisees are there and they're watching. So scribes of the Pharisees are the most committed of the Pharisees. They were the scholars who studied the scriptures, who wrote the commentaries, who were known for the strictest interpretations of their laws. Knowing that Jesus claimed to be a holy man and a teacher of God's word, they found this this whole scene scandalous. And so they go to some of Jesus' other disciples and they ask them why someone who claims to be from God would stain himself by sharing this meal who were deemed people with people who are deemed unworthy and unredeemable. And the first thing I want us to see here is found in the contrast between who Jesus is eating with and what the Pharisees are upset about. They think he should be eating with people like them, people who believe what they do and act the way that they want them to. What they're not saying in so many words is they think they're the kind of people God should save because they're the kind of people that he deems worthy of salvation. But this reveals the biggest misunderstanding in these verses, in this whole event. Really the biggest lie that's here. And that's to believe that some of the people at the party can be called sinners with the insinuation that the people watching the party, casting judgment on on Jesus and his new friends, wouldn't be called sinners. You see how they think, well, this is a group of tax collectors and sinners, but we could never be described that way. We have to confront the lie and see that the truth here is that everybody, except for Jesus, are sinners. There's nobody in this entire scene worthy of God's Son, but God has come for them anyways. The scandal isn't that Jesus was eating with sinners. Every meal he had with somebody for the 33 years he was on earth, was a meal that he ate with a sinner. The difference here, the contrast, is that he knows that, but the Pharisees can't see it. They should have. Of all the people in this scene, they should have been able to see it because they knew the scriptures. They read of God's, they, they, they tried to figure out who God was and what he was like, but they're too blinded, they're too consumed by their own self-righteousness to see that. And so Jesus essentially says, why is this surprising to you? Th- this shouldn't be at all. What, what he actually said, his words there at, at the very end, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call, not to call, the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, of course I'm among sinners. That's exactly why I've come. For Jesus to do anything other than this would be like a doctor who doesn't want to be around sick people. Our first temptation is probably to be like the scribes of the Pharisees, believing that we're in some way based on who we are and what we do, what we're like, what we've done, what we give, what we serve, the way we, the way we do things, that we're impressive to Jesus. But that's just pride. <laughs> and we double down on it we're, when we're judgmental toward other people who wish to come close to him, but all we're able to see is their sin. Or really the way, the way we usually view it, it's so easy to see the shortcomings in other people, isn't it? Such a hard time seeing our own, but, but, but theirs are so apparent to us. We can easily see the way that, that other people have failed. How they might not talk like us, or think like us, or, or act the way that we want people to. But to Jesus, all people are people that he wants to call to himself and, and invite into his joy. So that's temptation number one, is to stand in judgment of other people. But there's a second temptation that might be ours here. And that's to believe that we're the kind of sinner who Jesus would never be able to call out to. We might be tempted to, th- to be the ones on the outside of the party, but we can also be tempted to believe that we could never be invited in. <coughs> <coughs> we might think that Jesus would never so much look at us as Of course, he's never going to invite us to a party. He's never going to invite us to follow him. He's never going to want to come to our house, make us part of his group. You know, I've always wondered how much of Jesus Levi had seen before this day. I assume Levi had heard of Jesus. I don't think it was the first time he'd ever heard of him. I think it's likely that he's seen Jesus before, and I think probably he's heard him teach. But even given all that, I've always pictured this setting in my mind, and I've wondered what did Levi think when Jesus called out and said, follow me? You know, did, did it get kind of awkward where, where Levi assumed that there must have been somebody else standing behind him and it was like, what, me? I'm, I'm at the tax booth. I, I'm, a, I'm a terrible person. I've sold out my own people to make a little coin. Did it take him a minute to realize Jesus was actually talking to him? I mean, even even as they're going to his house, is he still asking? I mean, is he coming after Jesus saying, are you sure you have the right guy? Again, Levi, the tax collector, you want to come to my house? 
we can all too easily assume that we're not the ones that Jesus want. So yesterday, we had a kind of a routine medical question about one of our girls, and my wife and I were debating about whether we should call the doctor. It was the afternoon, not an emergency, but the office was you know, already closed and it wouldn't be till Monday morning where we could you know, kind of get somebody easily. And so my, my first thought, our first thought was, you know what, not a big deal. L- let's not bother the doctor with a simple question that we probably know the answer to. Um, but you know what my second thought was? She's a doctor. So she can help people in these situations. This is why she became a doctor, so that she could help people with their medical needs. I mean, yes, we're going to interrupt her for a few minutes, but, but she expects that because she has chosen to work among sick people. Folks, you're not too sinful for Jesus. He came precisely because people like you and me are sinners and we need a Savior. He wants to work among sinners. That's why he's the Savior. He knows that without him we're lost. If you say, why did Jesus come? It's precisely, it's exactly this reason right here because men and women are sinners. Selfish. Selling out other people for our own gain. And Jesus knows that we are hopeless without him. And so Jesus came exactly so he could call you to follow him. He wants you to come and sit at the table. And if people on the outside grumble about it, it's only because that they don't understand. If they truly know Jesus, not only would they get it, but they would join the celebration. I mean, that's the other thing I wonder about this scene. Do any of these scribes realize that they could have gone in and sat down and better right at home with these sinners because they are sinners too. They're not, they're, they're, it wouldn't be defiled by them. But they would sit at the table just like these others being made righteous by the man who is at the head. And that's available for you too. Jesus will welcome you in. He has promised that and he'll always do it. La- last week, in fact, we, we said that the kind of welcome Jesus gives isn't even the kind where he waits to see if you would want to come in. He goes out and he finds people and he leads them in. We don't leave our sin on our own. He leads us away from our sin. He takes us by the hand. If necessary, he will pick us up and firemen carry us away from our sin and our shame. And he does that by giving us his own righteousness. So Jesus eats a lot of meals with people. And they're really significant. When you eat with somebody now, you might just be grabbing a quick bite with them. But it's still, even to this day, but in in the ancient world, who you ate with, those were your people. Not just sitting across a cafeteria table with somebody But having this kind of fellowship with somebody really meant I want to be identified 
with these people. And so Jesus is not making a mistake. He wants to be with sinners. Probably the most important meal of all of them that Jesus ate with people was one that's very different kind. It had a very different tone than this one, but it's kind of ironic because the point is very similar. On the night before Jesus was crucified on the cross, he ate the the Passover meal with his disciples. Kind of like this one, Levi was there. But it was much different. During that meal, Jesus broke bread, and, and the reason he did that was he was telling his disciples that what must happen is his body must be broken to absorb the punishment for their sin. So Jesus goes in knowing, I have to take the blame for their sin. After that meal was over, he he pours some wine into a cup. And he said that's like his blood, which is necessary to, to atone for sin and to cleanse these men and anybody else who would come after them from their sin. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he came to earth because from the moment he was born, he knew that his life was going to end up at a meal with sinners, for sinners, describing what must be done so that sinners could be saved. In the Lord's Supper, not just eating a piece of bread or drinking a glass of juice, what it means that the body of Christ is broken for sinners. That the blood of Christ is shed for sinners. That's open. That gift is open to anybody who puts their faith in Jesus. It's not just for the outwardly righteous. Levi's, we already said, Levi's at that meal. So a bunch of other people, including the man who would betray Jesus over to his arrest and death, and the one who would, like a coward, run away from him when he needed a friend. Jesus already knows the kind of men he's eating with. He knows that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners here, and he knows the kind of men that he will gather around him to eat the Passover. And that's the second thing that I want us to see here. Jesus is a mighty merciful Savior. He eats with sinners and tax collectors and betrayers and deserters. And if he can save many of them, he can save you and I as well. Think about how there's nothing in all the world like the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ. All the world's religions talk about in their own ways how to be saved. But virtually all of them say it happens in some version of the same way. It's basically accomplished by you acting, being, achieving the right kinds of outward appearances and inward attitudes. It's exactly, in fact, the way that the scribes were looking at this party. They believed 
as they were standing in judgment of others that they had done and were doing what was necessary to be in the favor of God. Only Jesus says, leave your sin and come into my grace, knowing that sin won't be fully gone. Every one of the other world's religions says, leave your, whatever they call it, They'd call it something like sin. They'd call it something like your downfall. They'd call it something like your selfishness, your attachment to this world. They'd call it something else. Every other religion says, leave that stuff, and then you can come in to what is, is the goal. Only Jesus says, leave it. I'm going to give you grace, but he says that knowing it's just not going to be fully gone. So so let's get these two things straight. First, the call of Jesus for those at, at the dinner party and for anyone now is a call by grace to repent of your sin and leave it behind. But don't think, because that is difficult, that Jesus has abandoned you or that God will grow impatient with you. Even though you follow Christ, you will still sin. Jesus wasn't under the impression that those at the table were done sinning. That Levi was never going to sin again. Their lives would never be the same for any of them that, that were going to follow him and, and be saved. But it was absolutely the case that they were now going to need to learn to love Christ more than their sin. And God knows that's the same thing for you. You are on a lifelong quest to learn to love Christ more than your sin. And sometimes you will have great victory in that sometimes it's going to go pretty rough but in all of those times God will not abandon you and will not be surprised by what you are going through this is how the grace of God works our sin isn't instantly gone many people can, can get discouraged uh, when they feel like they, and feel like they've blown their chance at grace but that's why it's grace Because God gives it when it's not deserved or earned. And he keeps giving it even when it's not always held the right way. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That doesn't mean we should purposefully sin to get more of God's grace. That's backwards and it doesn't really make sense. What Romans 5.20 means is that when we live by the grace of God, we'll sometimes, against what we would call our better desires, fall into temptation and sin. But when we don't keep going under sin, but instead when we turn back to grace, God receives great glory from that. His grace is seen I would say even more in that because we turned away from sin and we threw ourselves once more again and again and again for the millionth time onto the grace and mercy of God. 
God is seen as such a gracious Savior when we can regularly say, I want Him more than I want my sin. And what about for us? When Jesus comes and calls and and, and He throws a party. We might find ourselves looking in at the party. We might find ourselves sitting at the table. So let me give us just something to consider about the way that we can welcome people like Jesus welcomes us. So one, when we're tempted to look in at the party in judgment. Second, when we find ourselves sitting at the table as one of the sinners that Jesus is so graciously called. So if first, if we're looking at the party, wondering what's going on, it, it can be easy for, again, our first reaction to be a little bit like these scribes. We might not want to be with sinners either. We need, church, we need to see that there is something very real that happens. Sometimes it's, it's even for good reasons. But let's not go too far down this road. What happens is the longer that we're Christians, the more we like to spend time with God's people And in a way, the more it becomes shocking to us when we're with others who are not Christians, therefore they don't share our hope, they don't share our values, they're not going to want to live like we will, set apart from the world. But if we've reached a point where we're just unable to be with anybody who's not entirely like us, or way worse yet, if we find ourselves looking at other people in judgment as though we're better than they are, or here's maybe even the very worst one, if we're looking at other Christians who are with the sinners and we're rendering some kind of judgment about their own spiritual health, their own spirituality, the godliness of that brother or sister in Christ because of who they're with, then it's not them who needs to be corrected. It's us. So we kind of ask a question this way. Uh, What does it mean to be in the world but not of it? Uh, For starters, we have to be careful that we're not so immersed in the subculture of our church and other Christian groups that we just lose all abilities to be with non-believers. And that can happen. If we're going to be ambassadors of the grace and of the peace of God, we have to be willing to sit and eat meals with sinners. Knowing that the person sitting across the table from us is also eating a meal with a sinner. On the other side, being called to follow Christ and therefore just being called out of the norms and the values in the kingdom of this world, that's a genuine calling. If your friends who aren't Christians don't see something distinctively Christian about you, then you are not living as somebody called by the grace of God. You're not living called out from the world. Those who are around you should see Christ in you. And I know it's going to make you squirm a little bit, but I think one clear indication that you're doing it right is you're actually getting pushed back from both directions. 
Jesus made the laws and rules crowd very uncomfortable. But he also never condoned the sin of the irreligious either. He tells the woman at the well to leave her life of sexual sin. He tells the rich young ruler that he would be way more generous if he really were following all the laws he claimed to be. He doesn't say here, go back to the tax booth, Levi. Levi's done collecting taxes. He's done extorting people. He's done funding brutality. Because he follows Jesus, he's never going to fit in with that old life again. It's never going to be, his old way of doing things are never going to be compatible with who he's now become in Christ. Christians, if you're a Christian, you're a new creation. But we're not so different that we can't remember what we used to be like. You get that? Track with that? 